Our New Testament reading comes from the gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 19. We're going to be reading verses 28 through 40. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount which is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The word of the Lord. We have just about completed our study in Revelation. We have one more message from chapter 22. And we'll be done with that book, but we will wait till after Easter, the Sunday after Easter, to come back to the book of Revelation for that final message. A paradox. What's a paradox? If you look it up in the dictionary, you'll find that it says it's a person. A paradox is a person or situation or thing that seems to have contradictory features that word for me describes a triumphal entry for years and years I was troubled I mean this is a major Christian observance it's on the Christian calendar Palm Sunday as Jesus the Messiah enters Jerusalem Have you ever thought, how is this a triumphal entry? Well, the king is entering his city. But before the week is out, he will be crucified. He's not entering the city to go to a castle, and he knows this. He's entering the city to go to a cross. Roman cross. It's a real paradox. That will be the theme this morning. 
We will look at this scene from six different perspectives. And I think we'll understand it better when we do. Before we do that, let's pray and ask the Father to teach us. Our Father, we bow before you as your priest this morning. We come as a congregation of priests, bringing our families, our children, our grandchildren, bringing our parents, our grandparents, bringing our neighbors, bringing our friends before you in prayer. We thank you, Father, for how you've answered the prayers of your priests. We pray that you will continue to bring healing to Linda Rayford. We pray for Phil Halley, Father, that you would give him more motion in his limbs. Bless Sally as she cares for him and ministers to him. Father, we thank you for the successful procedure with Stacy Bacopoulos this week. We ask that you would bring healing to her. Bless, Father, and strengthen Sylvia Clarendon. Our Father, we pray for Dee Farrell this morning, Jane Whittington's sister. We thank you for how you've brought healing to Jane, and we pray you'll continue to heal her body. But Father, we pray for the, her sister this morning, that you will put an end to this cancer, that you would bring healing to Dee. Our Father, we pray for our friends at Covenant Church in Nashville. Oh, Father, minister to that church. Wipe away the tears. We pray that, Father, as they stand tall for the faith, as they are stalwart for the faith, we pray that Father, that would bring light to the darkness. That it would bring consternation to Satan himself. Oh, Father, bless them. And now as we open your word, we know that John Sartell can't teach us so that it will make any difference in our lives, so that we'll be changed in the core of our being. But we've heard you speak that way, Father. We've experienced it. We pray once more this morning that we would hear your voice. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive. Give us eyes that perceive. Oh, Father, we're simply your children saying, teach us, Father. Tell us a story one more time. For the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. The triumphal entry, a paradoxical parade. We come immediately to our outline. As we look at this passage, I want you to see first the prequel to the triumphal entry. 500 years before Jesus was born, an obscure prophet named Zechariah had returned to Jerusalem from Babylon, 
70 years earlier, Israel had suffered a devastating defeat. Babylon had laid waste. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful king in the world at that time, had come to Jerusalem, laid siege to it, and then laid it waste. There was not one stone left upon another. There weren't anyone, there was no one left in the city. Those that did not flee were carried away to Babylon. But seven decades later, a group of Jewish captives returned under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. Their goal, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Zechariah was a part of that group. Zechariah wrote many prophecies about the future of Israel. Most, the most well-known, one of the most well-known prophecies of Zechariah was about the Messiah King who would come. And he wrote this in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly. Now here's Jerusalem being rebuilt. It's not what it was before, but it's being rebuilt. And he says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Daughter of Jerusalem, there's a king coming. He's the Messiah. You know that. In the 500 years that passed between Zechariah and the birth of Jesus, if you were to ask the rabbis, if you were to ask the priests, the teachers in Israel, what, what's that verse about? Oh, they would have said, that verse is about Messiah. That's Messiah when he comes. Now, that's the prequel to the triumphal entry. 500 years, Zechariah's prophecy. Secondly, I want us to see that 500 years later, Jesus purposely lays claim to fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. Look at Luke 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany at the mountain that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat, Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the coat, his owners said to them, why are you untying the coat? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the coat, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they, sp they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King. Notice that. Blessed is the King who comes. They were saying this to, to this prophet from Nazareth. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, Jesus, you've got to know this if you know the Gospels. Jesus had made that trip from Galilee to Jerusalem many times. Never had he entered the city in this fashion. 
Why now did he choose to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy and lay claim to being the Messiah? Why not on his first visit? Why not on his second visit? Why not on his fifth visit? For almost three years, he had publicly claimed that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, from the very beginning. Every miracle had been a claim to deity. He did not heal. You know that. He did not heal by prayer. He didn't pray for someone to be healed. He simply commanded and they were healed. He did it by fiat. He demonstrated a complete control of nature. He even raised the dead. And then he's his words backed up his actions. He forgave sins. Who can forgive sins but God? He claimed to be eternal. He said he had come from glory, from heaven. But now he was entering Jerusalem. He was entering Jerusalem for the last time. At the height of his earthly fame. He had been traveling, if you follow this in Luke, he had been traveling for some months toward Jerusalem, town by town. Everyone knew that the prophet from Nazareth was coming. The one who claimed to be Messiah, he was coming to Jerusalem. So now he will fulfill Zechariah's prophecy. Now he will ride into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. He will enter the royal city of Jerusalem, the ancient city, the the kings of Israel. Now he'll make a regal announcement. It was time. The Messiah was coming to his city. That was the spirit. That's what the people were thinking. That's what the disciples were thinking. The Jesus Seminar was started in the 1980s by a group of liberal scholars They wanted to preserve the moral and ethical teachings of Jesus, but completely reject Jesus' claims to Messiahship and deity. They continued as a group until 2006. They were very powerful in this country. They said said that the disciples in the early church made these claims about Jesus. Here we see quite clearly that Jesus orchestrates his entrance to Jerusalem. You see, the Jesus Seminar, they had a problem. They thought if Jesus really made these claims himself, he was either insane. They said there's only two choices. Either he was being truthful or he's insane. But if he really didn't claim to be God himself, if he didn't lay hold to the claim of being the Messiah, if he was just a great teacher, then they could hold on to his ethical and moral teachings. But if he was insane, his moral and ethical teachings lose their validity. So they worked hard. Marking out parts of scripture saying, see, Jesus really didn't say this. Jesus really didn't say that. But they have a problem. They can take away this passage and that passage. 
But his claims were so tied to his, his, his claims were so tied to his ethical and moral teaching that they couldn't, they could not destroy that Jesus himself claimed to be Messiah. That Jesus claimed to be God. They couldn't get around it without destroying his teaching. Well, this event is a great picture of that. Jesus orchestrated this event, not his disciples. He not only, he not only chose the means of entering the city, he also chose the time. He was at the height of his popularity. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was one of the most important figures in Judah. He was well known. When he died, the Pharisees from Jerusalem came to his funeral. After Jesus was raised from the dead, there was a great banquet in Bethany for Lazarus. The Pharisees from Jerusalem returned to Bethany to see the evidence. Jesus at this time, Jesus was the subject of every conversation from Galilee to Jerusalem. Jesus, on top of that, what, did, what time did Jesus choose? He chose Passover. Scholars estimate that there would have been between 200,000 and a million people in Jerusalem for that Passover. Everyone from the Pharisees to the common laborer knew the claims of Jesus. What they didn't know, but Jesus knew. Jesus was the real Passover lamb. That's why he chose Passover. He was the real Passover lamb. He had come to Jerusalem for this specific Passover. It would be at this Passover that the true Passover lamb would be sacrificed. Here we see a solution to the paradox. In his death, he would conquer. In his death, he would conquer. In his death and resurrection, he would vanquish Satan and vanquish sin. So you look at this and you see the prequel to the triumphal entry. You see, 500 years later, Jesus purposely lays claim to fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. Thirdly, I want you to see the unnoticed and extraordinary part of the story. Look at verses 30 and 35. Saying, go to the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it here. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Notice the phrase, which no one had ever ridden. This colt had not been ridden. It was unused. Why an unused colt? Think about it. The womb of Mary was unused before it nurtured Jesus. It was set aside for holy use. The tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. It was also unused. In the Old Testament, when something was set aside for holy use, it could not have been used before that time. This donkey, you've got to smile at that. This donkey had been reserved and set apart for that great holy use. The true king of Israel would ride this animal 
into his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So you say, what is the miracle that you hear, John, that usually goes unnoticed? Well, I'll go back to those words, which no one has ever written. And then we read, and they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the coat, they set Jesus on it. Now, you're not going to put me on a coat that's never been written. I grew up in the country. I, I have not ridden a donkey that has not been broken. But I have tried to ride ponies and horses that have not been broken. They buck. They threw me off. They'd scrape me off against the fence. They would turn and try to bite me. But Jesus got on that unbroken colt. And he rode it into Jerusalem through throngs of thousands. This is what Christ has done and is doing in our lives. He takes our rebellious, untamed, and wild hearts and causes us to submit to his authority and his will. We ought to smile as we read this story. There's a way you can look at that and say, you know what? That donkey's me. Remember the story of Saul that became Paul? Christ tamed him. Christ broke him. This is a continual action. I'll tell you it's a continual. I laughed through this when I was writing this. This is a continual action in my life. Every day, if I'm to be used of Jesus, if I'm to be set aside for holy use, and that's what baptism does. That's what baptism is. It's setting aside for holy use. Well, every day, Jesus has to be about breaking my will and breaking and taming my tongue and putting blinders on my eyes. Is that not true for you? Is it not a struggle? That's what Jesus does. He tames us. The prequel to the triumphal entry, 500 years later, Jesus purposely lays claim to fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. Thirdly, the unnoticed extraordinary part of the story. And then fourthly, the praise of a crowd that were understanding and not understanding at the same time. As he was drawing near, look at verse 37. Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now many of these folks sincerely believed that Jesus was Messiah. But they had a complete misunderstanding of what he had come to do. A crucified Messiah was just outside. He was outside of their frame of reference. The cross was beyond comprehension. They thought he was going to the castle. Now notice that Jesus did not, he didn't stop the parade. He didn't say, hold it. You all have got my person right. I'm the Messiah, but you don't have a clue as to what I'm about to do. In fact, I've even told my, the, 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 the 12 apostles, and they don't get it. They don't understand it. He simply accepted and loved their simple praise. At Christ's covenant, 
we love to study scripture and continue to define historical, classical Christian theology. That's what we're doing this morning. And that's a good thing. However, notice that Jesus did not say to this crowd, you have no idea what you're doing. He just loved their simple praise. They did not get what he had, that he had come to die for their sins. They did not get the cross, but they got one thing right. The Messiah had come. The Messiah was entering Jerusalem. His name is Jesus. And Jesus accepted their praise. When I first saw this years and years ago, I wanted to say, I wanted to go to, as if I was separate. And I said, Jesus, they don't get it. They know nothing of your incredible story of your sacrifice for sin. You know what Jesus said? He said, they're praising me based on what they do know. They got the, I am Messiah. I am the king. And then he looked at me and said, how much greater should your praise be? And by the way, John, do you think you really understand it all? the prequel to the triumphal entry 500 years later Jesus purposely lays claim to fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy thirdly the unnoticed extraordinary part of the story fourthly the praise of the crowd that was both understanding and not understanding fifthly Jesus allowed their praise and partying just days before the crucifixion we need to learn from this look at verse 37 we've already read it he was drawing near, and here's this praise. This is a party, folks. It's a celebration. They're dancing. They're singing. Why is there such a celebration? He was on his way to the cross. Before the end of the week, he would die a humiliating death on a Roman cross. This seems out of place. It's like singing a party song at a funeral. There was no time for a party. It's time for mourning. But again, Jesus loved their joy. The Messiah had come to Jerusalem. It was a time to dance and sing. People, there's a great message here for us. In this fallen world, and all of us experience this, all of us had experienced it, and we will experience it. Too many times, darkness reigns, and there's pain, and there's hurt, and there's death. Some Christians never, never go to the party. They only mourn or live in pessimism. They say, we live in a fallen world. Babies are being killed in their mother's wombs. Neighbors are dying and going to hell. Now's not the time to laugh. It's too serious. And they would tell Jesus, you've got to stop this party. I'm on the inside track, Jesus. I know on Friday you'll be crucified. I know you could not feel like dancing and singing. I'm going to mourn with you. And Jesus would say to us, then you'll mourn by yourself. I will sing and dance with the people worshiping me as their Messiah. I couldn't write that this week without thinking of a dear friend. He was dying of cancer. His daughter was getting married. We both realized as we talked that he would not make it to the wedding. 
And we decided that the wedding would come to him. So the next day, and this man was just hours away from dying, the next day we met in the bedroom where he rested in his house. And he was a pitiful sight. But his daughter and the groom said their vows together. We had a wedding right there. The next day he died, but he was there. That afternoon we laughed. He was dying, but we laughed and we sipped wine. But the story goes on. Two weeks later, she got married and there was a party, a big party. And they had a wonderful reception. They were not being stoic. They were being godly. They weren't being frivolous or silly. They were being holy. And we want to say, but Jesus, this Friday you'll be hanging on a Roman cross and God will pour out all of his wrath and judgment on you. And he would say to us, but Sunday my grave will be empty. This is just an early celebration. That's all it is. So we see the prequel to the triumphal entry. The 500 years, 500 years later, Jesus purposely lays claim to the fulfilling of Zechariah's prophecy. The unnoticed extraordinary part of the story, the praise of the crowd that was both understanding and not understanding at the same time. Jesus allowed their praise and partying just days before his crucifixion. And finally, a prophecy that will be fulfilled shortly. Look at Luke 19, 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I'll tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. People, that was not a hyperbole. That was a prophecy. Look at Matthew 27, 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. On that day, the day of the crucifixion, the disciples were quiet. There was no testimony. There was no singing Hosanna. There were no saying, this is the Messiah. They were forsaking the faith. But the rocks cried During the atheistic French Revolution, one of the diabolical leaders said to an evangelical Protestant Frenchman in his village, we will tear down your village church. That's what we're here to do. We'll burn your Bibles and there will no longer be a word from Jesus. And then what will you do? And the Frenchman was undaunted. He looked at him and said, and who will tear down the sun And who will snuff out the stars? For the heavens declare the glory of God, and the earth shows forth his handiwork. They said to Jesus that day, Jesus shut them up. This was blasphemy. They were giving praise to Jesus that belongs to God. They were doing the right thing. The Pharisees, this is blasphemy. Jesus, tell them to shut up. 
Jesus made this classic reply. I love it, don't you? He looked at him and said, if I tell them to be quiet, you see these rocks and stones? They will cry out. Well, they did. The earth shook and the rocks broke. But before the week was out, Jesus would take some ordinary bread and ordinary wine and use it in a way that would forever change how the disciples, how his disciples looked at bread and wine. The broken bread. We're coming to the table. The broken bread speaks to us of the body of Christ, pierced, crushed for our sins. The red wine reminds us of the blood of Christ spilled for our sins. There won't be an earthquake in here this morning, probably. The rocks this morning will not be split apart in this sanctuary. But the bread and the wine will speak to us of the glory and wonder, the majesty and the victory of the king. We will meet with him at his table after we sing our hymn of response. Hymn number 247, O Sacred Head Now Wounded.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.